empathy and data are not two words that we typically associate with one another. In fact, sometimes we think of them as mutually exclusive. There's data nerds over here, touchy-feely people people over there. But according to today's guests, they don't have to be completely separate. Carl Hightower is the chief data officer at Novantel. He told us that empathy and data go hand in hand. And I love that idea because empathy is all about understanding and relating to people's problems. And data helps us do that. Nowhere is that more true than in the medical field where Carl works. Data helps him to understand what ails the patients under Novant's care, where they're suffering, and ultimately what he can do about it. In this interview, Carl really hit home that these are real people and the decisions he makes helps to improve people's lives by improving their clinical outcomes. And that's my main takeaway from this interview, that data can help us have more empathy and that data plus empathy helps us make better decisions that improve people's lives. So without further ado, let's get into it. Welcome to Truth Be Known. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Truth Be Known. We have Carl Hightower, the Chief Data Officer and SVP of Data Products and Services from Novant Health with us today. Carl, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lauren. Glad to be here. Uh, we are really excited to have you here. You're in such an interesting interesting role at Novant Health. Um, how did you get started? How did you get started in data? Tell us about your current role. So how I got started in data is kind of all kids who grow up with baseball cards and statistics and numbers, um, and you find yourself kind of overly fascinated with it. As I got into a career um, in telecommunications, I realized that understanding how data was collected, how it could be used, um, was really powerful. And that kind of led to learning things on my own and ended up making a career kind of in information management uh, analytics and then kind of strategy around how to use it and change businesses. So um, just the evolution of accidents, really. Um, my role at Novant is chief data officer. So this isn't your traditional chief data officer. Uh, we were looking as we interviewed into this position was how do we take all of this data that we generate in healthcare and how do we cram it into information that is useful for decisioning. Um, and it's really having all of the things that you want to do from AI to analytics to real-time APIs and interaction. A lot of the things that you do in other industries from retail and telecommunications, healthcare has desperately needed that kind of change in order to interact with people and bring that expectation that customers and patients have. Um, and the clinicians expect, and the other industries have been there, and healthcare is now just uh, really leveraging it and starting to power up around uh, using that data and analytics. And I read a I read an article um, that you were, that you were in talking about empathy and data. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about sort of um, healthcare analytics and how you bring sort of this idea of empathy to some of the data and analytics that you're you do in your organization? Ah, so um, it's one of those things if you work in other industries and you've studied design thinking, uh, part of what I've had in the past for architects and development roles, and I know that I've done myself, is I go work the job. 
um, which the system is for. So whether it's a communication center, it's a retail center, or it's logistics, go work the job, go use the systems, and you start to learn what the issues are, what the problems are, and it helps make things better. The problem is, is that you can't practice medicine um, without a degree and certification. So this gets into how do you actually bring that same level of thinking and that same experience into play? So we have really good partners on the clinical side who are extremely patient, who take us around, and they're they're very good at uh, partnering on bringing that level of what I say that design thinking and that empathy to bear. And you sit there and you watch how they work and how they interact with it, and all the decisions they have to make off of um, just a tremendous amount of information at their disposal. So um, that's really been number one in my job is how do I continue to maintain those touch points um, with all of the different uh, clinical teams and all of the different operational teams that exist out there. That's awesome. And then how, when, when you're doing that, how do you see, I know you, I start this question over. Sorry, Adam. Uh, I know you didn't spend your entire career in healthcare. How do you see decision-making and priorities around data different, differ between healthcare and other industries? So it, it's interesting because you look at um, your interactions in healthcare and, and let's, let's look at health as a bigger thing than just your visits within um, an ambulatory system, which is a clinic. You go to visit your primary care physician or your orthopedic surgeon, in my case, more times, um, and you start to go into, then what's my experience in a hospital? So there are all these different event points and all these interactions, um, and it's much like you're going to different retail stores or other things, but you have to look at the amount of information that's generated, and you look at all of those uh, discrete points, whether they're statistics, um, things about you, demographic information, but the majority of the good stuff sits in notes. So if you ever take and pay attention to your visit with a doctor as you go in, they're typing a lot of information in the notes. And that's to help them as an investigator to understand what's going on. And all of that information in those notes has to be reviewed again, has to be transferred. So you look at how do we help distill all of that stuff down, really help them overcome those pressure points in order to interact with you, um, make sense of it, and really kind of get them out of the mode of having to take care of all of that, and then start to leverage all of that data that was just generated and get it into more of a personal relationship. Um, and that's, that is the biggest difference, I think, within healthcare is just all of this data, but how much of it is really discrete stuff that's usable. And that's kind of the flip that we're trying to make. Oh, that's great. And there's definitely this piece. It sounds like there's this piece of, ooh, uh, sorry, Adam. Uh, and it sounds like there's this, this piece of, you have all of this numbers and all of this quantitative data, but there's the bit of qualitative, there's a bit of context and the, I don't know, the heart's probably the wrong word, but that context that the physicians and people that are dealing with patients are going to put into this on a day-to-day -day basis. Absolutely. Um, you look at the amount of emotional investment and the amount of, um, I would say, not just, you know, stats and working out all this and what's your blood pressure, what does your uh, vitals say, but there's also a level of trying to understand the bigger picture 
of what's wrong with you, why are you in here, and how do I actually start to create um, that investigative path forward? Um, and that goes into then transferring that into a treatment plan. So there's a lot of things that you look at from just a assembly line method of treating someone. Now, how do I actually take all of this information and really get into personalized medicine? Um, each person's unique. There's different things um, that you can do for each person. There's different tolerances for health and wellness. Um, instead of taking all these drugs, maybe it's I change my diet, I change my lifestyle. So there's really a, um, I would say, a change coming to now leveraging all the machine learning, leveraging all of this data and really getting it into a one-on-one -on -one responsibility um, for patients, clinicians, and, and transferring that, I think, into a, a better outcome overall for everyone involved. That's, that's awesome. And I think as the you know, person that's not in the healthcare industry, I think this whole concept of personalized medicine and knowing that, to your point, we all have a different tolerance. We're all looking to do different different things, but there's all of this data, all of this machine learning behind it that says, based on the information we have and the what we know about this patient, this is how we're going to get to a better outcome. And it doesn't always mean take this pill. It could mean make small, simple changes um, is phenomenal. And I have to I have to believe this whole transition to the cloud and more and more industries moving to the cloud has had a massive impact on the healthcare industry. Yeah, and it comes down to, so one, having done this a while back in other industries, you know, the retail, telecom, energy, um, and banking, you start to look at, okay, I'm gonna take all this data and I'm not only gonna start to make sense of it, but I'm going to put it to use for different things. Um, machine learning models, being able to turn it loose um, against different ways of processing it. So not just your standard relational uh, databases that have existed in the past, but now I'm looking at more of a Kafka-based architecture, event streaming, looking at graph databases, just to see what corollary things are out there. There's a lot of power to be able to leverage different types of problem solving. But the other thing is I can try it out without this huge capital investment and kill it if it doesn't work. So you can try to really solve those problems and then spin them down when you're done. And that that change in thinking of cost investment um, is really powerful when applied correctly. Um, it's, it's fantastic, especially with just the amount of data that's now open. When you start to look at, hey, I can, I can do all of this image processing, I can do natural language processing, there's all sorts of things that can be brought to bear. You know what? I honestly hadn't even thought about the cost component of a lot of this and it, how much it's going to enable you just to be more innovative, to try things and try try things, be willing to fail. Um, so one of the things we think a lot about here and as a, as a marketer I have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis is this whole idea of bad data. It's, um, it's one of those adages of I'd rather have no data than bad data. Um, how you must see this a ton in your industry. Do you have examples or anecdotes of what happens with bad data or consequences of relying on bad data? Oh yeah. So this is one of the, so it's one of the ones where it's the same problem in every industry. Who are you? How do I know you are who you are? Um, and it gets into, okay, I need unique identifiers. Uh, okay. Sometimes that doesn't always happen. 
um, and I'm not always carrying an ID on me every single time, and I've got to be able to match you up. There are no national databases for people um, as you start to get into it. As you look at healthcare, um, it goes into, I really need to understand who you are and your history to make sure I'm not giving you a medication you're allergic to. I actually understand your history so that I can better treat the problems that I'm seeing. How does what I'm seeing right now, as you've shown up into an emergency room, actually, how does that fit with the history that you've had in the past? The more that I know about you specifically, the better I will be at being able to treat you. And that's, you see that and, and it is makes, okay, I really need to get on my game and, and get this master data thing, you know, sorted out. Um, it also comes into master data within this uh, context of healthcare is, am I filing the claims correctly? So when you file with the insurance companies, making sure that you understand the different codes that were put in there, and there are a ton of codes. So making sure that they are accurate for the person, the payer, and all the things that go in there, so we don't have the back and forth, and it's a better consumer experience all the way around. Um, that's costly to have to continue to go back and forth, and frankly, it's irritating uh, for patients as well. Oh, I, I can definitely attest to the being used to as a patient. You can even be in the same, the same hospital, the same clinic where you were seeing a different doctor and it's like the first time you've ever met them and they're, they have no idea that you were just there and you were two offices down. Um, and just how that's has started to change and purely from a, a patient perspective, being able to go in somewhere and talk to a doctor who says, Oh, did you get that prescription refilled? Wait, I didn't, you didn't know. Oh, that's right. You're part of a, you're part of a network. Yes, I did get that prescription refilled. Thank you for checking. And now you actually know what I'm, who else I'm talking to outside of you that can impact my care. So another, another thing, just as we start to look at identifying who you are. Um, so I traveled quite a bit growing up and um, obviously within consulting in different areas, I was all over the US and you get into how do I put together different events over periods of time around my care with different areas. Um, and this goes to in individual incidents um, don't always add up. And this is part of actual having that customer journey type of uh, experience with your continuum of care. So now I can look at all of these events over an extended period of time around you and put together some of those chronic diseases um, that don't always manifest themselves in one event. Um, so let's take it, for example, um, MS. So MS has flare-ups, they come and they go. You lose your eyesight, uh, you lose use of a leg or other things over periods of time and they're spaced out and they come and they go. Individually, they're irritating and they don't always add up. But if you take them over a longer continuum, now I have a pattern of something that I've seen multiple times, and now I can actually get to a treatment faster and be able to really put that together. Um, it, I think it saves a lot of time on the patient um, and, and helps them uh, be put at ease, but it also helps from a clinical standpoint get that treatment earlier um, and really um, start to focus on how do we move forward. Absolutely, and it's this idea that by having better access to data in healthcare, by really doing a lot of the work that you and your organization are doing, all of us and patients can have better care, better care faster, 
and probably find out things that we didn't even know what to ask for. We don't know what questions to ask, but you're able to piece together, to your point, all of these different data points. You, your physicians can better know what's happening with us, provide this idea of better treatment is pretty incredible, especially if you think of where we were even 10 years ago, five years ago of lots of scribbles on paper. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's one of the things you look at is um, going from handwritten notes to now there are it's electronic, but it's still electronic notes in most places. Mm -hmm. So that comes down to we progress pretty far within the natural language processing and AI and machine learning within the last even two to three years. So you look at the power that's brought to bear. Now I can start to do some interesting things with that. Now I can start to get some insights and pull out patterns out of notes, even from different clinicians. So that that now starts to change the game because um, I can unlock a tremendous amount of history and be able to see patterns that I had always had an intuition for, but now I have hard evidence around. And that's there's real, real power in that. And I, I have to think about, so you're coming in uh, and you are making a lot of these changes and you're bringing more data in. How did you face any challenges coming into that situation? Did you face any challenges with the overall adoption of this sort of data-driven approach? Yes, I, I obviously it's one of the ones where you get into, um, there's a level of we've always done it this way and, and this is how um, we continue to use our Excel, our access and just give me my report. Um, it comes into the great thing about why I came to Novant was the leadership was like, we know we need to leverage this and we know we need to be a data-driven organization. It's not going to be easy. It might be painful, but we are willing to make that change. And that's, and that's a huge mindset shift. Um, but that also means that you're going to have to actually look through what were the barriers before. Um, when I came into this role, I spent the first three months interviewing all of the different constituents and meeting them and understanding how they were getting data today, how they were using it. Um, there was a just rolled out within the last year, extensive business objects uh, implementation. Um, so, you know, a bunch of universes and reports and all of these um, subject areas that people could pull into. Um, and, and business objects has its place within reporting, but as far as the next level analytics that people wanted to get into, it's very hard because now if I need changes or I want to be able to combine things, I'm putting in requests, it becomes slow, it's cumbersome to move through, um, that dynamic type of an environment. So one of the harder decisions was I had to essentially pull the plug and move. So looking at all the statistics of usage, um, when were, what were people doing with it? Well, they were using it as an ETL tool for the most part, or they were using it for set reports um, and they were doing their statistics. Um, and, and that's one of the things where it goes, okay, that's basic level usage. How do we evolve? How do we change? And that's that was a hard one because people were so invested in that way of doing it. And there was a legacy Cognos environment as well. So a lot of people were using that for building out their other things. Lots of little pockets. And this was a get the teams together and go, okay, it's great. Let's break down the silos and let's look at how we do this as an overall company. Um, and that was obviously culture change, but when they start to work on little teams together and they have little projects to go after, they see 
the benefits and the power that can come with that. And that, that gives you a lot of that buy-in and that kind of helps you move to that next level. Um, and it doesn't always come easy, but it's one of the ones where people start to see, oh, I'm getting these huge benefits. I'm getting things that I couldn't do before. And that's really where you have to get them um, as quickly as possible. And change is hard and change is hard for, I think, everybody in every space. And you must have heard some some stories interviewing and spending months interviewing everybody. Um, do you have any advice for anyone that's listening that is trying to do such a radical transformation that's trying to really change the way people think and act? One of the one of the things, and I think it's no matter whether you're developing applications or any other thing, um, and I know this has been written in books many times, but I'll say it again, truly understanding why. Why are they asking the questions they're asking? Do they do you and do they understand what they're going to do with the information? Are there operational processes that they're actually looking to change to do? Um, once you start to put yourselves in their shoes, of what they're going to do with that data and information, then we can start to have that next discussion of what does a product set look like for them? Because what you want them to do is to be able to navigate. You don't want them to come back every other week and ask for something new. This has got to be about giving them something that helps them answer questions, make decisions and move forward. And it really is about products and making sure that you are providing that level of service to answer questions. You don't want to be a data jockey um, some of the people on my team have, have gotten to the terminology of a Sherpa. Um, and they really are that data Sherpa of helping understand what's going on, what does this mean, um, and how do we actually use it to make decisions. And it is a, a team thing to move forward. And, and that's that requires that level of partnership and really getting to understand and know the people and what they're doing with that data. Um it sounds like you uh, you don't always take the, the easy path and you've gotten to push change and uh, really move organizations forward. Um, so in your entire career, what's the most difficult decision you've had to make? It seems like it's this. I'm, I'm, I, I'm either really stupid for doing the same thing over and over or um, I just love the challenge of it. But it's, a lot of it is coming in and not being afraid to kill the things that have been there for the long periods of time, there's so much of an investment around it. Um, and that goes to the application development, you know, standards that have been put in. And if you're on the West Coast, you've heard this over and over, cattle, not pets. Do not get too attached to things because the opportunity comes to move, you've got to move. So helping everyone on your team understand, don't get attached to it, don't, don't invest too much emotionally in it because we are going to move as technology and needs move. And that's, that is one of the benefits of cloud-based architecture, but it's also a mindset in development is that we are building um, for what we can see today, but we don't know what's coming tomorrow and something better may be there and we're going to have to take advantage of it. And that is a philosophy that you've got to get across and you've got to get across who understands that you've got to know it and make those difficult decisions early and quickly. I I couldn't agree with you more on that. Uh, a phrase I've used often is um, get attached to the outcomes, not to the not to the work. It's we have to be tied to results. I'm okay being emotionally attached to the results we drive, 
how we got there, the technology we used, the number of hours we spent on a project that might get killed, don't get attached to that. It's about the outcome. Yeah, that's the technology piece is great um, because having worked for many different uh, people within organizations and all over different places. So having worked in many different places and many different organizations, um, I can tell you that technology comes, technology goes. And sometimes it's at a whim. Um, and that goes to the functional training of being able to handle an area and not necessarily just a tool. So you're not just an Oracle DBA. No, you understand how data works, how it's stored, how it's leveraged and used, and you adapt as technology adapts. Um, and you're, if you're into ETL, well, I'm not just married to one technology. No, I understand I'm a data engineer who understands how data actually moves, transforms. How do I need to reference it? How does it actually interact with different types of cloud configurations? Because there are different things to move it faster or to be able to handle it in bulk. So that's that really comes down to getting the teams to buy in. You are not a tool. You are a functional resource who is going to do a bunch of different things and learn. And that's on us to help learn and teach um, all of our teams. No, it, I mean, 100%. And that's how, if you are attached to a technology, if you are attached to one, one way of working, you and I both know technology evolves faster than we can imagine. You have to have the skill sets and the core skill sets so you can evolve as quickly as technology does. And it's a how all of us will remain gainfully, gainfully employed. That's funny. Um, it's also one of those ones where it's part of the interview process I look for is I don't want someone who's been in one technology or tool set. Like I have, I have 15 years as X technology um, DBA or architect or so forth. I actually want to see someone move around and play with different things um, because what that shows me is that they're willing to change, they're willing to learn. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that I, when I interview, I've changed how I interview over the years because of so much is changing and people are very set in their ways. I actually try and start a little bit of a disagreement um, when I'm interviewing because I want to see how they argue. I yeah. want to see if they're not afraid to argue. If you can, if you can argue with me and take it not personally, but no, I'm going to lay out the argument logically. That's awesome. That's the type of person that you really want because things are going to change and they're going to have to be able to convince, adapt, and work with people who aren't always going to get it right off the bat. I think that's awesome. It's funny. I um, I feel like you and I are probably similar interviewers. I, I have to assume by the time you talk to me, you have a degree of technical competency. I don't I don't need you to have the technical competency. I want to know how well you problem solve, what you do in a crisis. And I want to know what I need people who work for me to have passion about something, anything, anything. I need you to have that passion about something because if you don't have a passion about your absolute most favorite thing in the universe, there is no way you're going to have passion at work. So, so many of my questions are really trying to tease out those traits and my questions are always, a couple of them seem so random and it almost seems like I'm not paying attention and why did she just ask this question? But those are usually the most important questions in an interview for me. That's funny. It's uh, So it's the how you answer it. 
yep. not exactly what you said. It, it isn't. The, um, this is uh, hopefully no one that will ever be tortured by me during a job interview will be on this one. Um, I tend to ask everybody, what's your worst travel story? And the reason I ask that question is I want to understand what bad is for you. Like if you say my worst travel story is, you know, I forgot my sunglasses when I went to the beach. Then what I've learned is what I, how do you, what are you going to do when there's a real crisis? That's not that bad. So what, what does bad look like for you when you're dealing with this terrible situation? What did you do? Did you figure it out? Did you fall apart? Like, tell me how you, you went through it. And then really the end of the story shows something about how they think. Is it, and the whole world fell apart and I never traveled again? Or is it, you know what? It turns out I, did, I couldn't get into my hotel room in Mount Fuji. Then I had to go over to Tokyo. And then I didn't have a key to my hotel room in Tokyo. So I ended up at Denny's all night. And you know what? Denny's in Tokyo is pretty cool. You're like, okay, you know what? Whatever I can throw at you, you'll be fine. And like, those are the traits you need to find in people. Because if you find those kind of traits in people, it, the work that we do becomes a lot easier. Yeah, and that's and that is one of those ones that it's. Um, I think that's a a little bit of a learn for some people over time. Mm -hmm. um, is how to go. Okay, it is what it is. How do I move forward from here? Yep. Um, and, and whether that's travel or it's anything else, um, having played golf for a long time and, and competitively at a point in time, um, that's a hard one because, you know, the shot's done. I can't yep. get it back. Um, and I've heard, and some of the most positive golfers, I know that I remember um, Jordan Spieth talking about he hit the shot, it's over, it's done, and now the next fun one begins. So it's it's that mentality of kind of um, taking it, moving on. Hey, there's a great opportunity to move from this position. And that mentality is one of those things that you've just kind of got to continue to foster and nurture. And and that's that is one where it also helps to um, have some really great people in your life who continue to poke at you on that and and make sure that you bring it to all aspects of your life. Absolutely. Um Okay, so we are going to go to the quick decisions portion of our, our podcast today. Uh, we are. This is going to be questions you have to answer quickly. Everyone who knows me knows I'm not allowed to answer these questions because I am long-winded. Uh, so my questions for you, Carl. First one is, what is one talent or skill that's not on your resume? Um, answering questions quickly. No, um, <laughs> it's... Probably the fact that I the the knowledge of just useless trivia. Um, I don't know why or remembering lines from movies. It's just one of those things. Yeah, absolutely. So you were on, so on my pub trivia team. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, probably. Okay, it's good to know. Um, uh, if you weren't in tech, what would you be doing? what I'd want to be doing is actually writing about traveling, playing golf in different places in the world and going and doing all of that. I have not quite figured out how to make money out of that, but you know, that's uh, one of those things that's always interested me. Um, yeah. Um, what would be your top advice to give yourself 10 years ago? Learn how to meditate. 
just learn how to relax, take things calmer. Um, the world isn't going to end on certain things. And it's part of the, I guess, as you get older and you have kids that grow up and you realize life kind of moves on and it's just learning to chill quicker. Um, that would have been my advice about 10, 15, 20 years ago as well. Um, just absolutely learning how to just lower it all down. I, I think that is excellent advice that every single person could use. Just the world keeps going. Um, all right. My last question for you is what is your favorite um, book or TV show that you're currently binging? Oh, so I'm a podcastaholic. Ooh. So, um, yeah. So whether it's the Knowledge Project or Farnham Street blog to Freakonomics to everything in between Joe Rogan podcast. Um, the, since the pandemic began, the one that I cannot miss is This Week in Virology. So, it, yeah, TWIV. So this mm -hmm. is one of those ones where it is. it comes out and I, uh, the closet epidemiologist, just comes on out. And so this is, I've learned way more about how viruses work. They incubate, spread, all of the things that go on with it. Um, fascinating stuff, but it's also it should help you to understand just how quickly we have moved. And this is one where I work with a fantastic epidemiologist here who's our chief of um, safety and quality for the system, uh, Dr. Priest. And, and he's used to tell me it's an investigation. It usually takes three to four years to figure out mm -hmm. a virus, You're looking back at data and all the history of it. We moved really, really quickly on this virus. And that's one of the things I think people are taking for granted, the amount of technology, um, research and decision-making that was done very fast um, and actually across the globe together. So that's um, that cannot be taken for granted. It's kind of amazing how how quickly we, we got where we are. Uh, I need to check this out um, this week in virology. Everyone else. Definitely check this out. Um, and by the time we're recording, we are on the 53rd week into at least Bay Area of our two-week two week flatten the curve. We're on week 53 of it. And you are absolutely right, Carl. The fact that in the Bay Area, 25% of eligible residents are have been vaccinated is kind of incredible. I, I think that also people were talking about the mRNA vaccines and you know, how quickly it was developed. The technology has been worked on for 10 years. You know, I mean, it's got a lot of history behind it, but think of how effective and targeted this vaccine and the mm -hmm. set of vaccines are. Um, this is the way the vaccines will be done in the future. You can think about it as targeting specific viruses for areas like 3D printing. I have the RNA sequence. I know what I need to do and I'm sending it and we're gonna go manufacture a vaccine like this. Um, that's absolutely amazing. That is incredible. And it is just the future where technology is going to take us all. Thank absolutely. you so much for being on the show, for sharing all of your wisdom and your words of advice. And to wrap it all up, everyone should chill out a little bit. And I'm also going to learn to meditate better, Carl. So thanks for the reminder. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Truth Be Known is brought to you by Talent. A leader in data integration and data integrity, Talent enables every company to find clarity amidst the chaos. Talent Data Fabric brings together in a single platform 
all the necessary capabilities that ensure enterprise data is complete, clean, compliant, and readily available to everyone who needs it throughout the organization. Learn more at talend.com. That's T-A-L-E-N-D.com.